Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. This is Dan Snow. Still buzzing, still excited. I don't know if you heard yesterday's episode of the podcast, but I was on the riverbanks of the Thames in the shadow literally in the shadow of London Bridge. One of many bridges to span the Thames in that exact spot, stretching all the way back to the Romans who first put a bridge across the Thames. There, It was as far downriver as they could still bridge, and that became the reason for the existence of London. Uh, and we found a coin, not just any coin, we found a George II coin from 1752. Now, as everybody knows, the 1750s was the greatest and best decade and most interesting decade, I should say, in British history. Uh, and so it was a great privilege to find this very serendipitous. I say I found that coin. That's, of course, grotesque. The brilliant Lara Maitlam, the famous London mudlarker, found the coin. But I was present. I was there. So some of my juju made that coin surface just when it did. Uh, anyway, this podcast has got nothing to do with uh, any of that stuff. You'll be hearing all that in detail on the podcast coming soon and on the History Hit channel historyhit.tv, new digital history channel. Please go and check it out. You use the code POD6, exclusive to podcast listeners. You get six weeks for free of charge. So go and go and sign up, please. You'll also be able to watch this interview that's coming up on this podcast. Uh, on the pod today, we have a remarkable couple of people. We have Nomi Lopian and we have Derek Neiman. Uh, Derek got an unpleasant surprise a few years ago when he discovered that his grandfather was an indicted war criminal partially responsible for the deaths of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people during the Holocaust. He wrote a book about that experience. That brought him together with Nomi Lopian because she also published a book. She wrote up the experience, the diaries of her father, Ernst, who was a Jew caught up in the Holocaust. Both his siblings perished in Auschwitz. Only one of his sisters survived and he was lucky enough to do so as well. The two of them have now been travelling around the country, around the world, talking about what they have both learned from their journeys and what they think the rest of us can learn from the experience of their grandfather and their father. One a Nazi, the other a victim. It was a pretty profound podcast to record this one, very emotional. So I hope you find it as interesting as I did. And remember, the interview will be going up on historyhit.tv along with lots of other uh, Holocaust-related material for this big anniversary. In the meantime, enjoy. Thank you guys so much for, for coming on the show. Let's tell you, Naomi, what is, talk to me about your 
relationship, your connection with the Holocaust? My connection with the Holocaust is very raw and very direct. Both my parents were children of the Holocaust. My mum, at the age of 10, was questioned at gunpoint by the Gestapo, a gun literally to her head, asking, is she Jewish, is she Jewish? She was imprisoned there um, in Annemasse in France, and she was um, looked after by a young group leader, age 22, who looked after my mother and a group of 32 children. And she was saved by the Lord Mayor of Annemasse. Um, and was liberated into Geneva. My father was 17 in 1939 and was taken into seven concentration camps over four and a half years at the age of 19 in 1941 um, in Poland and then into Germany and was liberated near Munich on the 30th of April um, 1945 by the Americans. How did he survive that experience? Well, he's written it all in the in the long night and he wrote it very soon after the war so it's a very frank fresh immediate account um, and remarkably he studied after the war medicine and dentistry and devoted himself to helping people in the community and founded the association of persecutees and erected a memorial in Dachau and always was looking out and after humanity and continued above all remarkably his belief in humanity. Derek what about you? Well, I discovered relatively recently that the, the grandfather I'd been told was a simple pen pusher was actually an SS captain, a Holocaust perpetrator. And his job was to go around the likes of Auschwitz, Dachau, Sachsenhausen and supply the inmates, the slave labourers, with materials to, to work themselves to death. So his, his workforce was the inmates and the factories were the concentration camps. So, so your, uh, your grandfather played a significant part in, in a genocide? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Uh, when did you discover this? I discovered seven years ago. Would you believe I found him on the internet? I knew by then that my... And I only found out shortly before that my father had actually spent his childhood in Berlin and I simply got the address from him and googled it and up came a charge sheet from the Nuremberg trials and it said SS Hauptsturmführer Karl Niemann crimes against humanity use of slave labor and did he what, what was his pen what was his uh, um, punishment three years which was quite a lot at that time. By then the Allies wanted Germany strong to act as a bulwark against the Soviet Union so they were, they were quite keen to get people out of prison. Did you meet him? No, he died before I was born. And you grew up in Scotland? I did. Yes, I did. So my, my dad's sister had married a Scottish soldier and moved to Scotland. And then in the late 1950s, my dad weighing up the economic strength of Scotland and Germany decided that Scotland was a better bet. Good shout. <laughs> I think he made a mistake. No, he didn't. So you, did, it, did you, were you able to confront your father and aunt then with what you'd discovered? My, my father by then was slipping into dementia. Um, my uncle, who's still alive in Germany, accepted. He was remarkable. I mean, he, he and his wife raised two little girls who were orphaned at Chernobyl. 
So he was the antithesis of a Nazi. So I think to find out more about the father who was quite distant to him was, was painful, but he could accept it as truth. Now, you are someone who's known about this is fact, this history has been part of your history ever since you were you were born. What what does it mean to be a, a descendant of survivors? What, how has that affected your life? Well, yeah, you say it's been part of my life since I've been born, but consciously it hadn't been part of my life. I didn't know about my mum till about eight years ago, my mum's story. My dad never knew about my mum because my mum thought my dad's uh, history was so much worse than hers. So she never felt she needed to share that. Um, and in a way, my, neither my mother or even then my father really, in inverted commas, burdened me with their history because I feel in a way it is a burden. And when I found out about it, I had two choices, either to ignore it or to live with it. But living with it has, is what I am doing today. I couldn't ignore it. My conscience wouldn't allow me to ignore that. So um, what I try and do is, uh, can't be passive about it, but decided to go around and educate people, particularly our youth. We go to schools, to universities, and that is like a plaster to the wound, especially in the current political climate and in the current climate itself, where around Europe, anti-attacks um, against Jews are increasing, even in the States are increasing. And interestingly enough, for me, it's interesting, even though it's extremely sad and terrifying, as different groups are doing the attacks. It's not actually just one group. It is extreme groups. Um, it's, it is groups of extremists, left, right, extremist jihadists, but the ones recently in the States are by black people and they themselves have considered themselves a minority and have been persecuted. So it fascinates me what drives people to that. At the same time, I recognize that we are all human and each human, I say, is capable of good and evil. And each human fears and hates different. We're naturally people that are herd, driven by herd instinct and by liking sameness. So I drive all that passion and concern into education. I've been hearing a lot recently about generational trauma and the effect that mm. uh, even having a grandparent, that even if you've been born and raised, lucky enough to be born and raised in, into affluence and, and uh, in, in, a, in a modern society, you can be, your, your health, your mental health can be affected by uh, being the, the descendant of a survivor. Is that something you, you've seen in your family? Um, I fight against that. It really upsets me and I also don't want to, I believe it's true, uh, it has to be it's, if it's proven in science and increasingly so, I read as well. But I think it's dangerous to fall into victimhood as such, so I don't want to, I would fight um, depression or victimhood through it and try and surmount it. But um, I'm sure there is something, even my whole passion about the subject isn't quite natural if you will i call it passion my family call it an obsession um so, so, so yes i'm sure we are affected by by it undoubtedly it sounds to me like your dad um was a fighter as well he didn't want to mm. let his past define him can you tell me more about how he lived his life yes i can although i was 12 when he died um but my direct knowledge of my father first and foremost is that he was a very loving father um, and um, a fun father, even though he was an older father, he talked our talk. 
and he's somebody, I'm the eldest of three kids whom we miss desperately till to this day, even though I'm a grandma today. Um, I still miss uh, my father very much. Um, and as loving as he was as a father, and I'm not making a, a hero of, of him, I'm sure he was extremely human, he was very kind to, in his professional life as a dentist and also in his community. For example, as a dentist on the chair, we adopted um, a Catholic grandmother. So how do we adopt a Catholic grandmother? She was his patient, which isn't strictly very kosher, and I'm sure he'd get struck off today. Made conversation with her, found out that she had no husband, no family, and she became our family. And it enriched our family. I don't know where she was in the war. I don't know where her husband was in the war. Vaguely, they said, uh, she said, told my mom, I asked recently, he was in Russia. I don't know how true that is or not. Um, but the fact is that my father took her on face value. My father treated the Germans as his patients. And I never, growing up in Munich and Germany, I didn't understand any animosity towards the Germans. That was never expressed by my family, which I think re it's remarkable. The way I was brought up was more that I should not make myself, um, in German you say Alphine, I shouldn't make myself remarkable. So I should sort of hide and shrink within, and I've done that in Germany as a child, and I took that over when I came to Manchester at the age of 13 as well. I always hid, and I would never really, um, how do you say, come out with that I'm Jewish if around Christmas, um, whilst I was working in the hospital, people say, are you ready for Christmas? I'd say nearly, and I'd say, well, I'm not lying because I'm also buying Christmas presents for people, but I would never come out that, you know, I'm Jewish and I don't really celebrate Christmas. You were a mature adult when you found out, pretty mature, I guess, oh, yes. found out of this pretty shocking news. Did it affect your life? Are you a different person? Yeah, I think I am. Um, I mean, immediately when I discovered it, it would be fair to say I was paranoid. Because at that point, I thought, I'm nearly 50 years old. What else is hidden? You know, what are the other family secrets? What else is being concealed? Um, and then I think I gained a sense of perspective. My wife helped a lot because as I was, as I was researching my, my grandfather's story um, leading to, to writing a book, she said, stay level. Doesn't matter about your emotions. Try and be as objective as you can in following this story through. And I can see, I can see in retrospect just how warped my dad and his siblings were by carrying that kind of knowledge. I mean, my father and his sister, until the day they died, were, were anti-Semitic. They were, they were driven by resentment. They believed in the end that, and it's, it's impossible for anyone else to imagine that, but they believe in the end that the Jews won. So my dad could say, yeah, six million people died, I accept that. But they got our house in Berlin. And at the same time, my dad could be friends with, with a Jewish colleague at work. Is there a little tiny part of you that feels responsible? And I say this is someone who, my great-grandpa was a general at the Battle of Somme. And I've met survivors who, uh, who suffered appalling, who's descendants of survivors. Uh, people who suffered appalling casualties under his command. And part of me wants to apologise. I mean, you'll see it's Nomi now. How do you... Because it's not your fault, but do you, is there a part of you that... <laughs> I think for, for several years I did feel responsible, but...
but I think since since I've been speaking with Noemi, I don't feel any sense of personal responsibility anymore. In fact, quite the opposite. I I feel completely empowered. Um, and all credit to Noemi. It was Noemi that came to me and said, I think we should speak together. And to see that the response of, of people in the audience met, you know, Holocaust survivors will come up and they'll hug me, they'll shake my hand. It's as if they can see that, that their light is going out, but that quest for truth is being carried on, not just by their descendants, but by the descendants of perpetrators. And, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful feeling for me to think that the people who had been so abused feel that, that, that little me can do something to, to give them a, a legacy of hope. Are, are you glad that when you found out you didn't just stick it and repress it and instead bathed in it, wrote a whole book, found out everything you could about it. Has that been an important process? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm a writer anyway, so anything I find out I have to write down. But I did feel like I had the choice to say nothing, but I felt impelled to, to write it down, to, to try and understand why it had been hidden and what had been hidden and then to follow up to say, what can I do about this? Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Dan Snow at checkout to save. 
Terms and conditions apply. Well, let's deal with the first, the biography of your grandfather first. I mean, what did you come away sympathetic? Was he just a young kid in the wrong place, the wrong time, impressionable, or, or do you think he was a? Do you think there was evil there? I don't think he was inherently evil, but I think he was happy to do evil things in the belief or the self self-deception that he was doing what was best for, for his country. Um, it was interesting because this morning we were speaking to, uh, in the, to the civil servants, civil service, and one of the points I made to them was that he may well have felt that he was a servant of the government. And so everything he did was legitimised by the state. I, I don't feel particular sympathy for him. He was, he was 37 years old when he joined the Nazi party. He was 42 when he became a member of the SS. He spent 10 years working for the SS. He went to all the concentration camps on a very regular basis and saw exactly what was going on. And indeed, when his trial came in 1947, the judge said repeatedly, you must have known what was going on but you continued in your job. And do we? Do you hear his voice anywhere? Do you, do, is it either via your father or, I mean, do, do, does he describe what it was like doing that job, being in those camps? My dad didn't know exactly what his dad was doing and, and I suspect didn't want to know. So it's difficult for you to connect with your grandfather in terms yes, of what he was. Yeah. Yes, it is. All I know from my father is that he said his, his father was a disappointed man at the end of the war. But I don't think he was disappointed because he felt that he'd misbehaved. I think his disappointment came from the end of a dream. Perhaps he felt that, that Hitler had done the wrong things. But his was a very, very narrow focus that, that sidestepped his own personal responsibility. Noemi, what about your investigations into your, uh, well, your father? Um, can you tell me more about his war, his experiences? In the war itself, you mean? Um, well, he was uh, picked up in March 41 to go to the first uh, labour camp, Grunheide. There he was actually reunited with his father, um, which helped him a little bit, although they worried about the mother and siblings at home. He managed actually to get his father back home um, through bribery and being able to write. He wrote love letters for someone and uh, that was part of the deal and got my grandfather back home. But home by then wasn't home like they'd known. Home was um, ghetto and, uh, you know, all the rights taken away, living with multiple families, living in sickness, not having food, not having money. So home wasn't this idealistic home anymore. And then he went to six further camps. He went through death marches. I can read some excerpts because I always say, my father says it's so much better than I can say it. And when I paraphrase it, I kill it. Cattle wagons. And he went on from Grünheide to Markstadt, um, to Flossenburg, Großrosen, Fünf Teichen, Leonberg, and then was uh, liberated near Mühldorf at the Tutzinger Lake. And that was by the Americans. And uh, you know, to us, liberation, freedom, we imagine happiness and boisterousness, but there was huge emptiness. They were, they'd gone through an unbelievable trauma, and even that word isn't strong enough. 
that term and uh, they had nothing to go back to our home to. Um, how, how did family fed? So one sister survived and she moved to America. He didn't know that immediately after the war. He found her months later. And the other two siblings, a sister whose name I carried, was 13, and a brother, eight, they were murdered together with his parents in Auschwitz in August 1943, my father found out. Um, I'll read, can you read the extracts? Yes, I'd like to. I will start by uh, reading an extract from the, one of the marches my father was on. How does a person feel? when he sees his companion being shot the moment he stops walking and realises he can barely walk himself. Of course at first he carries on, he wants to live, he reaches for his companion's hand to support himself, but the companion is at the end of his strength and he pushes the hand away, he won't support the laggard, the weak one is left behind, but that one must see for oneself the lifeless face the flickering eyes of a person about to confront his fate. The bullet strikes his neighbour, and soon he will also be struck. Who can say what such a person experiences whilst walking the final steps of his life? Who can describe what he feels and suffers in these moments? And what did I myself experience on this day? As chosen inmate, I had to carry the bread sack for the capo, and the last one in line I had to march next to him and the SS man. The SS man shot all who stopped and the capo had to record their concentration camp numbers. I looked into the barrel of the gun before the bullet struck the neck of the tottering person, looked at the thin stream of blood that ran slowly as life departed the body. I observed the SS man and saw how he ate with appetite his carefully prepared open sandwich whilst continuing to walk despite his bloody deed. In the nearby fields there were farmers sowing and at one of the houses at the roadside a woman was watering her flowers. In this moment a bullet pierced the head of a struggler. A small stream of blood ran down the temple. And all that happened in the midst of built-up fields and lovingly tended flower gardens. Are we still living in this world? Or was this all a nasty, unending nightmare? How was it possible that people within 50 metres were quietly going to work, whilst in their midst, exhausted, defenceless people were being shot. And this is also whilst my father is, is marching, just after having left also the cattle wagons. We marched on hard-packed snow. The peace and quiet of Sunday lay gently over the little town as we marched through. Our march became more and more arduous because we had to go up an incline. We were wretched, despairing figures as we struggled to drag ourselves along the white-covered streets. Suddenly, the loud noise of church bells rang in our ears. Before us lay the church proclaiming Sunday. Although we retained only a pitiful glimmer of life and hope, the chimes of the bells touched something barely alive in each of us. Did this signify anything? Had the priest rung the bells on this peaceful Sunday morning to call together the good citizens of this small town to protest against inhumanity and indignity in general, and this awful procession of corpses in particular? We really wanted to believe 
to hope that the world was at last alerted from its indifference and had eyes to see this dreadful drama as it passed before them, the martyrdom, torture and death of helpless people. Could they not see, hear and feel that in the face of this unfathomable mass murder they could not and should not remain any longer silent? Well, that's very resonant, isn't it? Because that could be all periods and all places. And exactly. Today. We all turn the other, we all look the other way. What's the last quote? The last one was for liber how he, they felt upon liberation. Okay, let's hear that. 75 years ago this yes, spring. Exactly. Everything we touched was freezing. The barrel of the guns we embraced, the clear frosty night, even those people we met on the morning of our freedom. Now we were free, but what remained of our past? Our homes had been destroyed, our families annihilated. We were solitary islands in a freezing foreign world. These first days were strange. Our minds were numb, as if we had been intoxicated by our freedom. We could go wherever we wanted, could do whatever we wanted, but we always encountered dismissive, uncomprehending faces. The world could not or did not want to understand our pain. Had these people been so hardened by their own suffering that the tragedies of others was an unbearable burden, a burden they were unwilling to bear, regardless of circumstances? Naomi, why... Why, why tour the country with Derek? Why, why do the double act? Why not just talk about your father's experiences on your own? Because I think it gives people a much broader understanding of humanity, that ordinary people are capable of doing extraordinary things. We might think of Hitler as somebody extraordinary, but we're all human. We are basically all the same with different abilities and inabilities. We have very much in common. And of course, our uniqueness is our difference. But we really belong to one race, and that's the human race. And coming from two different perspectives and joining together is an extremely powerful experience, both for Derek and myself, and equally for the audience. When you meet people like Derek, do you ever think, you know, I, I blame you for what your forebears have done? Is it easy to separate the two? Yes, it is easy, particularly because Derek didn't meet his grandfather. And Derek came to it by accident of birth, like I'm Jewish by accident of birth. So actually, I find it extremely easy. It's not my fault that I'm Jewish. I was born to it, you know. Uh, and you're lucky. And if, if you watch whatever you're born to, that's part of the stars or God or whatever you believe in. So totally not. On the contrary, I applaud Derek. And it makes my talk much more powerful when Derek actually says, and that's his family, it must hurt Derek. It's not easy to say what his ancestors have done is actually wrong. That's, that's courage. You two uh, are, both, are both willing and keen to talk about this history, this very personal history. What, how do you want your, how do you want, how should generations, the next generations, the ones after that, the ones after that, you mentioned your grandchildren, do, do you want them to be as engaged with this history, or do you want them somehow to be able just to move beyond it and not feel that there's this giant tragedy, uh, evil it, it lurking in their past? Start with you. Now. I, I'd like, of course, I'd want them to move way beyond it. Um, I just want them to be what in Yiddish you call good pe mensch, a good mensch, be a good person, be a decent person, 
and that's what I want for all of humanity. I certainly don't want them to be burdened with that, nor do I believe I can tell, let alone grandchildren, children what to do. I wasn't told what to do. I think it's really unhealthy to do that. So no, I don't. And you know, don't, don't do as I say, do as I do. So if they can learn from me by example, the good things that I do, because I'm very human, that would be great. Okay, what about you? I think for me, I, I see this as, as one of a number of genocides, but one that I think British people can relate to more than say, for example, Rwanda. Um, or Srebrenica. You know, this this is one where there was a, a so-called stable, strong country that was corrupted, and so I, I feel that there are there are very useful and pertinent lessons for 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 younger generations from this, and, and I think particularly um, my grandfather was was probably not exceptional. He was he was mediocre. He was unimaginative. And he led himself to believe that what he was doing was, was the right thing. So he's not an ogre. He is, if you like, every man. Um, and I, I want younger people to, to appreciate that it's important to, to challenge things, small things, while it's still safe to do so. And not to take against people just because they come from a different background or a different religion. But, um, I mean, Noemi talks about the Nazis killing kindness. And that's really fundamental to, to what we do together. We want people to, to look at us and recognise that two people from different backgrounds have come together in the interests of, of kindness and understanding. Well, thank you both very much indeed. Uh, we got your two books, A Nazi in the Family by you, Derek, and The Long Night, A True Story by you, Nomi. Uh, it's 75 years since uh, the liberation of Auschwitz. Since uh, is this, this must be a, a really important year for you guys. You'll be talking to a lot of people, I guess. A lot of people, yeah. Yeah, we are, um, both here and then in June we have a big conference in Toronto called Liberation 75, and that's drawing people from North America, from from Israel, from who knows where. Naomi, do you worry that after the 75th anniversary, there's a danger that people will move on and forget? I think there's all, I think beyond the 75th anniversary, it says our survivors are getting older and fewer, and the first-hand witnesses are actually dying, then I think people will forget. And I think people have already forgotten. The current climate shows that people have forgotten what it was like in the Second World War and before this behaviour, and things are revving up. I mean, it's a simplistic view. I'm sure it's always multidimensional uh, economy and all sorts. But um, yeah, we have to be vigilant. And like Derek says, I'll end with Derek's words, if I may. While we can make choices, make good, safe and wise choices. Well, thank you. I'm glad you made the choice to come on the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. 
makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review, I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there, law of the jungle out there, and uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout. <laughs>